0: Welcome to the second recap episode of the Kinsman Die podcast, home of fantasy fiction based on Norse mythology that's written and read by me, Matt Bishop. In this podcast, I read my first book, Kinsman Die, chapter by chapter. Every five episodes, I recap the prior chapters, which is going to get more complicated as time goes on, which I think will be on display in this particular episode. So if you've happened to start with this one, then do what Vicini said and go back to the beginning. Not that this job has gone wrong, of course. I'm actually pretty stoked at how well the podcast is doing so far. And that's entirely due to all of you guys who have been listening. So thanks very much for doing so. And please let me know what you think. Shoot me an email. Contact info and stuff will be in the show notes. Before I start, I want to emphasize that my books are works of fiction. I have absolutely taken creative license and building a world for these characters. One of the first decisions I had to make was, should I make the characters in in my book gods as they are portrayed in the myths? And if so, what is a god, a member of this Norse pantheon? If it was the the D&D manual, I'd have a pretty good idea. They'd have a list of powers, a list of stats, and all that kind of different stuff. But that really wasn't what I was trying to do in, in the books. And trying to answer the question what is a god in this context led me to start thinking about well what is a human if the characters in this book and the myths have created humans then where are they in my world and what about all the so-called elves and dwarves you know those two races as typically described have you know have pointy ears beards scottish accents And that just really didn't interest me. So I've tried to take a different tack when describing those particular races, the Alvar and the Svart Alvar. And humans are just not in it quite yet. And my Asir and Vanir are not gods, not at this point in the universe that I've created. And as I mentioned, I think in the first recap episode, as is pretty typical if you're creating a story, a narrative that goes from, you know, that has an arc, not just for the world itself, but for the individual characters participating in it. I picked a point in all of the Norse myths that I thought was the most compelling, where I wanted to tell a story, where I thought kind of the fulcrum was for all of the various tales, where things began to change. And I also made the decision pretty early on that I wanted my Asir and Vanir to be younger than they are typically portrayed. So they're not at what we would call the height of their powers necessarily. They don't in the myths the characters are always who they are. They're fully formed, they're fully fledged. They 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 are who they are completely. And what I wanted to do in the books was to create like i said an arc for these individual characters at least for the point of view characters and even for some of the the subplot characters if you will so odin is as you meet him is not the odin of the myths not yet frigg is not how she is in the myths and there's very little about frigg which is a great one of the big reasons why i picked her as a as a point of view character because it gave me a lot more freedom loki is portrayed in a multitude of different ways in popular culture. But his character is, in the myths, he's he's two different ways. He's an ally of the Asir. He was a Jotun. He became Asir when he became a blood brother of Odin. And then something happened and he became the enemy of the Asir. He's typically portrayed as a trickster figure or something like that. And I think it goes a bit beyond that. And that's one of the things that I tried to explore in the books. The same with a character like Vathrudnir, which we, who we have not yet met in the book. That will be chapter 13, I believe. And one of the interesting things about Vathrudnir and the Jotun in general is that when Odin has questions in the myths, he goes to the Jotun to find the answers, to Vathrudnir in particular. That's really interesting because it shows that the Jotun know more about where things are headed and how things are than Odin does, which, like I said, sounds really, really compelling, which is one of the reasons why I picked Vathrudnir as one of my initial point-of-view characters, and also because the poem that features him, the Vathrustnismal, is just an awesome dialogue between the two the two of them, between Odin and Vathrudnir. And as you start to read all the different myths and you start to try and piece things together from one to the other, to the other, to the other, I started to try and figure out for Odin in particular, what did he know at this point in time? And why was he asking this question? What was he looking to gain? Was he asking a leading question that he wanted to guide Vath to a certain answer? Did he perhaps already know the answer to the question based on another interview that he had done? And a lot of all that doesn't necessarily come through fully fledged in the text as as I'm reading it now to everybody listening. It's backstory. A lot of it is. And then what's really cool about backstory is you can create these entire character arcs that bring certain individuals to certain points and nobody knows any of that except for you, the author. And maybe those who know the myths really well and can make some really good educated guesses as to where I'm maybe going with things. But there's a lot of stuff that's happening in the background, like with this pending conflict, perhaps, with between Asir and Jotun. What are the motivations of that? What do the Asir know? What do the Jotun know? Why did the conflict kick kick off? The same kind of goes for the Asir-Vanir War, Vanir War, which I'll get into in a future episode when Freyr and Freya figure more heavily in the narrative itself. But that's all backstory. But all of those events inform what's happening in this book. And it's up to me as the author to try and tease out those details, to reference the myths for those who understand them, to know the source materials, and to make it accessible to those who have no idea what I'm doing, with respect to the myths, but to still make it interesting and to make it compelling. And that was one of the biggest hurdles I had to overcome when I was writing, which was, oh, my God, everybody already knows the myths. I'm just, how am I going to make this tense? How am I going to make it dramatic if everybody knows the answers already in advance? And kind of the answer to that is, so what? Most of the stories we read, most most of the television we watch, everybody already knows the answers to it. What's going to happen, I mean. The, The trick is in making some really interesting, compelling characters that do things in a smart way that are that can make mistakes and pay for them or make brilliant choices and benefit from them. And how all those interactions play out as people come together and events inform everything and all that kind of different stuff. So I'm starting to ramble. So I'm going to cut myself off and get right back into the detail on the myths and the plot that has happened in chapter 6 through chapter 10. Chapter 6. Chapter 6 was about Vidar, and he made an unfavorable impression on the leaders of Halls, But the interaction was salvaged by his Keoler, Garalon. There's a lot here myth-wise, so I'm going to start with the easy ones and move on to the more difficult stuff. I mentioned the Bay of Thund. Thund is the river that flows in front of Valhalla. Valhalla does not yet exist in my book. I had read somewhere, and the source escapes me. I, I couldn't find it when I was preparing for this episode, that the word Thund can also mean bay, as in, why don't I just go eat some hay? Or... I can make some things out of clay, or lay by the bay. I just may. What do you say? Ten billion points if you catch that reference. Next up is Gothi. That's the title used in Iceland for the elected chief or priest of a region. I borrow it here to just mean chief. Wolf of the sea. I use it as a pretty lame kenning for predatory fishes. I also mentioned The Cruel Doom of the Norns. There'll be a lot more on the Norns later. They are pivotal figures in Norse mythology as well as in my books. This particular reference is to the Norns who supposedly visited each child when they were born and assigned them either a good or bad doom. I use the word doom instead of fate or destiny because the latter words are more linked to Greek myth and have their etymology... Their etymological roots in Old French and Latin. And doom is from Middle English, but it traces back to Old Norse and perhaps back even further to the Proto Indo European root D H E, which means something like to set, place, put, or do. And if you don't know anything about Proto Indo European, uh, you're in good company. I only had first learned about it when I started writing. And started trying to trace back the origins of all these words. What I've tried to do in my books is prefer words that trace their roots back through the northern Germanic Norse languages rather than Greek and Latin and you know Old French and that kind of stuff. Just because I was trying to make the language itself kind of evoke the just the, that entire culture, that entire mythos that evolved out of those northern regions. It's pretty impossible to do, but when I could and when it made sense, I preferred a word with those Norse-Germanic origins versus a word that maybe originated from Latin or something like that, or Greek. Another reference is to Bragi plying the harp. And this is a reference to the bench-warming Bragi, Poet of the Asir, which is in itself right now a reference to Lokasena, which is one of my favorite poems. Bragi is married to Idun, she who tends the fruit of Yggdrasil. All right, so now we're at the more involved topics, which are fulgya and disir. In Norse myth, the disir are female deities, spirits, who are attached to or associated with a neighborhood, a family, or a person. They are similar to the fulgya, who are also female spirits, who tend to protect an individual or perhaps a clan. And sometimes the word fulgia is translated as follower, perhaps familiar. If you're familiar, sorry, uh, with like the cat that follows the witch around, the cat is the witch's familiar. The concept of disir and fulgia is related to a person's hummingya, which is associated with a person's luck how lucky somebody is in battle, in life, etc. And the Hamingja can be inherited or passed on to another. And I, I don't remember what saga it is, but I believe one of the Norwegian kings passes his Hamingja to a favored uh, retainer for at least a short time so that that individual can have better luck in doing whatever it, he was about to do. A fulgia can also be inherited, as in my father's guardian spirit can become mine and then my daughter's. The disir and the fulgia are never men or male, which is pretty interesting to me. And the Valkyrie are also sometimes referred to as disir, as Odin's disir, Odin's female spirits. Freya is called vanadis, dis or dis of the Vanir and i'll note here that there's some debate as to who or what the vanir even were really i have chosen to represent the vanir as a separate group of people who initially opposed the asir and then became their allies after the asir vanir war which in my world building is pure backstory but like any good backstory as i mentioned earlier it informs the events in this in this book and in the upcoming books without kind of being in your face in other cases the word desir is used in the context of the norns who are as i mentioned the the goddesses of fate or doom who attend the birth of every child in my world the norns are not desir not at this point in the universe they are something else and there's uh, i forget which myth it is But the Norns are drawn from many different races, from Asir, from Vanir, from Alvar, from Svartalvar, from Jotun. And they are priestesses, and I've done something very deliberate with them that I'm going to keep under my hat for a little while. But my root concept in the books is the Disir, and it's kind of like the top-level female spirit. Disir can become Fulgia if you know how, and there have already been hints in the book as to how Odin has made that happen. I've also created uh, Greater and Lesser Desir. The Greater Desir are finite in number, and I've linked them to another concept in Norse myth, which I'll leave alone for now because it would spoil things, at least in my mind. The Lesser Desir are spirits of wind and fire, of hills and mountains, trees, lakes, and rivers, and this will become important later, actually in Book 3 in particular. All right, Chapter 7. Odin gets pissed at the drunken Heimdall and is trying to get out information out of Heimdall regarding what he's heard about the events in Vithi. This goes directly to Heimdall as the eyes and ears of the Asir. In the myths, he is not a drunk, but in my book, he is. He wasn't that way when Odin left Glad Same 20 Winners previously, but he became that way in those intervening years. And there'll be more on that in a future chapter. Heimdall's already dropped some hints, and Frigg has as well, as to what's going on with his hearing. And this subplot, as I mentioned, will get more apparent as the novel progresses. And according to Rudolf Simex's dictionary, Heimdall's name might mean the one who illuminates the world, which honestly doesn't make any sense, um, at least in the context of what I know about the myths. But... Nobody really knows what what Heimdall's uh, name truly means. In the Voluspa and the Rigsthula, both are poems of the poetic era. His name is Rígir, in which he is said to be the father of all mankind and of the various classes of mankind, the Thralls, the Karls, the Jarls. And this is super problematic on many levels because a lot of the description in Rigsthula in particular make him sound like he's Odin. And so there could be some overlap going on. There could be confusion going on. Nobody really knows. So this really wasn't a problem for me in my books because I just ignored it. And I created Heimdall as a separate character with a certain defined group of powers. And Odin is totally separate. And as I had mentioned before, my Asir are not gods. And they did not create humans any more than Emir created... The Svartalvar and the Alvar from secretions from his body or rubbing his legs together, which is entirely gross and just doesn't make sense. But these creation myths never really make sense, which is also why I ignored it. Snorri refers to Heimdall as the white Óss, So I made Heimdall pale. He is said to have golden teeth, which if I guess if you have to have tooth decay, golden teeth is good. So you can pay for some nice dentures. Heimdall is the watchman of the gods. He needs less sleep than a bird, can see things a hundred miles off in day or night, can hear grass growing on the earth and wool on sheep. He owns the Gjallarhorn, which, when he blows it, can be heard throughout the entire world. And in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he's played by Idris Elba, and it really doesn't get much better than that. There's a lot more to be said about Heimdall. But for now, those, I think, are the key points, and that'll set you up pretty good for what's coming in the book. And his capabilities will be on full display throughout the books. And honestly, his senses have been kind of a headache for me, because I've had to figure out how the Jotun would deal with somebody who could always hear and see what it was they were doing if they weren't careful. And this is partly why I've developed a sign language for the Jotun to use, including Loki. I mentioned Sather, which is spelled S E I D R. And the D in Old Norse is kind of like a a blend of the D sound and the the sound. Really tough to say. It is a specific form of magic that Odin learns from Freya. The root word is related to spinning, as in uh, spinning yarn or spinning wool or thread or something like that and sending out, and you'll see how I work that into future chapters, and more on there later. I also mentioned the berserk, and I used that term just because it seemed kind of cooler than the typical Berserker. According to Simek, Snorri made a mistake in saying that the Berserkers went into battle without armor, or naked, meaning bear. The root, according to Simek, is Bers, B-E-R-S, and it's from Bear, where Sarker means shirt or skin. So in Simek's opinion, these warriors were probably wearing bear or wolf skins. And Snorri calls them Odin's men. They were wild as dogs or wolves, bit their shields and were stronger than bears or bulls. And they were unharmed by fire or by iron. In the Icelandic sagas, bear sarks are usually portrayed as complete asshats who go around bullying ordinary folk until a hero comes forth and kills them. In my books, we've met several Bearsarks, Gulfin, Rota, Vidar, and Odin. And we've met a Fulgia, Vidars, who is a disir. And if you remember from the chapters, Vidars Fulgja is not really happy to be imprisoned or chained to him as she is. I also mention Draugr and a Draugr's Bone Blade. A draugr is one type of undead in Norse myth and in the Icelandic sagas as well. There's some really, truly amazing draugr undead stuff in those sagas. Grettir's saga and Erbegge saga, I said that wrong, but it's a tough word to say, are probably the two best examples, or at least the ones that pop to mind initially. And if you've seen the movie The Northmen, there's an awesome scene in that movie in which Amleth goes into the barrow and fights a draugr for possession of the blade. It's right out of the sagas. It's awesome. The only way to truly end the living death state of a draugr was to cut off its head and place it on its buttocks, which is the Norse version, I think, of what Balki Bartakamus would call buttock pinches. And then once you've done that, you light everything on fire. According to Simek, the word Draugr belongs to the Indo-Germanic root drug, which purportedly meant harmful spirit. And as I had said before, I also mentioned the Draugr's bone blade, meaning an edged weapon, a sword in this case, made of bone. And more on that later. Odin's ravens. Odin is unique in having four familiars and I think he's the only Asir who has any familiars whatsoever. They're not called familiars in the myths, but that's how I've approached uh, them. They are, his ravens are hugin, which means thought, and munin, which means memory, and then freki and geri, and both those words mean something along the lines of ravenous or always hungry. In my books, Odin can speak with his familiars mind-to-mind telepathically over long distances, but not over infinite distances. And in a way, this is both plot convenience and kind of a drag when you ask yourself the question, wouldn't Odin just send his ravens or his wolves to find out what was going on? If I answer yes to that question, which I usually had to, I would have to figure out a new way to plot a scene that takes that into account. And this, among other things, can cause cascading series of ripples that can require minor but usually pretty major revisions to avoid the bane of anything that could be construed as idiot plotting, and hopefully I have avoided that trap. Sigfather is a title that is only used by the Einherar, at least in my books, and this is usually translated as father of victory, just as all father is often... Uh, translated as father of all, which, as I think I mentioned in one of the initial episodes, doesn't make sense for Odin because he is not the father of everyone, unless he is uh, Riger in Rigsthula. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. In any any case, Dr. Jackson Crawford, in one of his YouTube videos, talked about how it was possible that rather than the father portion of that word— is not father at all. It might have been mistranscribed or misunderstood or something like that, and it might mean or might have been a word like fother, which means basically one who sets things in order, in order, or the orderer of things. And that makes, in my opinion, a whole lot more, more sense, because Odin, as I mentioned, is not the father of everyone any more than he is the father of victory. Sometimes he is. In at least one very obvious case, he is not. But he could be called one who brings victory, as in, if he's on your side, you're more likely to win unless Odin decides that he needs you. But more on that later. Chapter 8 Frigg is annoyed that Odin is leaving after having just arrived back in Gladsheim to help figure out... What's going on with their son Balder? In that chapter, Frigg then has a vision of Balder on a burning ship. She doesn't want Balder to go with Odin out to Vithi to help Vidar because she's afraid that something's going to happen to him. And in a couple instances in this particular chapter and in prior chapters, Frigg has mentioned that didn't we make Balder unkillable? That even the venom from a snow bear would run from his skin like water. And that is all I'm going to say about that for now. Instead, I'll talk a little bit about the returning of Frigg's ability to see the doom of all men and women. And as uh, the book progresses, this is going to become more clear as to uh, not necessarily why it's returning at this point, but what it is that she's actually seeing and what it means and how she deals with it. I also mentioned Odin's high seat, but rather than use the the Norse word, which, uh, according to Simek, the etymology of which is really not clear. It may mean something along the lines of, based on root words in other languages, something like an opening or a shelf from which one can look through the opening and see out over the entire world. It's kind of interesting that the etymology is unclear. I use the word high seat because that's typically how it's been translated. This is one example of when I was reading, I just edited out the Norse word because it's really tough to say, and I didn't want to wreck the listening experience as my woolly tongue was tied in knots trying to say something that I found difficult to pronounce. The point is that from the high seat, Odin can see into all the worlds. But where is the high seat, and what does see mean? And here, in talking about the high seat, I want to kind of circle back to Sather, which, as I mentioned, is sorcery. And here I'm referencing a book by Neil Price called The Viking Way, which is a fantastic book. And it dives into the archaeological and textual evidence for sorcery in Scandinavian societies. And there's a lot to be said about, say, there in that book, obviously, and kind of the connotations of using it as a man, which were extremely negative. It was meant; it was said to be unmanly if if you were an, a male practicing female magic, or magic of any kind. It was seen to be unmanly. So Odin has that connotation to him, and actually Loki calls him out on it more than a few times in in several of the Eddas. And several of the uh, poems in the in the poetic era, I mean. But there's a concept in uh, that Neil Price brings up on page one twenty of his book called the saith Saed- saith yaller, which is a special platform that the performers of a say their ritual or magic act climb up onto to carry to carry out that ritual, which made me think that. That sounds an awful lot like the high seat. Odin climbs up into this seat. He performs some type of magic ritual that allows him to see out over all the worlds. And if you recall, I think it was in... I don't remember which chapter of the book it was, but Frigg said that she went to Odin's high seat, and this is attested in one of the poems in the Poetic Edit, I believe, that she goes to the high seat, probably Baldur's drama now that I think about it, and sits upon the high seat and summons Odin back to Gladsheim because Baldur's having these bad dreams. She is the only one who is allowed to sit on the high seat, aside from Odin, obviously. But in one of the myths, and I can't remember the name of it, but Freyr sneaks, you know, a little seat, a little, a little time on the high seat, and pays for it dearly because he sees a woman, a Jotun woman named Gerðr, and he falls madly in love with her, and there's a whole myth about what happens to him afterwards. We also see Odin pestering Frigg to tell him what she saw in her vision, and she refuses. This theme will develop throughout the book and throughout the series, and it's also an example of Odin's unrelenting desire to know absolutely everything. We also see Balder's healing skills on full display, as in the previous chapter where he says, It's not say there, it takes time to work. And this is a bit of my world building in action, and it turns Balder into a healer that while he uses magic, he also relies on natural remedies. Chapter 9 In this chapter, we're back with Vidar, who really botched his impromptu briefing with the town elders. This was one of the chapters. Uh, kind of a side note that I had reviewed by a professional writer, way back, way back when. That individual uh, said that there was no way a jarl would allow these mere commoners to talk to him like that, and I I didn't disagree with him at the time, and I still don't. Um, necessarily, we don't really know. All of our popular culture and media say that you know jarls were one thing. And the peasants just kind of did what they did, kind of like in that Monty Python skit. Help, help, I'm being repressed. But I left the chapter the way it was because, really, for two reasons. I wanted to show some development for Vidar's arc, to take him from one point to another. And I wanted to also make or have the quote-unquote commoners in this world interact with the Jarls in a different way, at least at this time point in time in this world and besides that there's not really a whole lot here myth-wise that i was trying to do but a lot of this stuff a lot of the stuff that happens here is not only important to vidar story arc but to the world building and to what happens later in the book chapter 10 Odin rides out after a quick talk with Golfin, and this chapter lays the groundwork for some important conflict that will happen later in the book and the series, as well as the magic system I created for the world. So, just a word about magic systems in fantasy fiction. They're a huge pain, and they're a lot of fun. Brandon Sanderson is probably one of the—I mean, he writes great books, but he's really well known for the hard, quote-unquote, hard magic systems that he's created— Basically what happens in a hard magic system is that the author lays out the rules for how the system works and the character is learning and the reader is learning how the magic system functions as it goes through. And usually what happens is that how the plot changes and twists is related to how the character learns how the magic system functions. And usually they, in some creative or innovative way, use the rules of that system to their advantage and they get the win. I started out wanting to do something like that with, say their rune magic, necromancy, fulga and disir and shapeshifting and and all the, the various different types of magic that exist in Norse mythology. And I actually went through when I was creating the world and listed out all of the different types of magic systems from gandur, which are sung charms and Sather, which is spinning and sending out uh, into the world your will and having it find something and bring it back to you or generate some effect out in the world. Or rune magic, which Odin is the only one who knows how to manipulate. But as I kind of went through, at least in Kinsmen Die, I started backing off of that goal. Just wasn't interesting to me to lay out the rules of that system. It didn't it wasn't developing the plot. It was I was getting bogged down in the mechanics of how it worked and what it was doing, and I was exposing too much of that system to the reader in the entirely wrong way. It wasn't aiding the plot. It was, if anything, it was detracting from it. And I think that was partly due to my inexperience as a writer at the time, and not that I'm super experienced now. But what I've tried to do more in Dark Rose the Sun and in Book 3 is to pull way back and go more toward a a magic system that is, quote-unquote, softer, where the rules are clear, I know what they are, and I don't break them, but I'm not making it a plot point. I'm not making it key to the story itself, the characters learn how to do some magic, particularly in book three, and then they use magic to do certain things, like we would use a car or we would use an elevator or a telephone or something like that. But it's not necessarily integral to how the plot unfolds for the character. It is certainly It certainly plays a big role, but my emphasis, I think, is a little bit different than what happens, at least as I understand it, in, in books that revolve around these hard magic systems. Tolkien has developed, this could be considered more of a soft magic system. You know, We don't really go into the mechanics of how Gandalf flings fireballs at the wargs beneath the tree. He just does it. And we know that he can do it. And he has a certain command over fire, and he can break you know, stone and that kind of thing, and he can fight a Balrog and whatnot. But we don't really get into it too much, into the mechanics of how the magic works. Stephen Bruce, one who's probably my favorite novelist, fantasy novelist, also has what I would call a, a soft magic system where there's clear, definite rules. He's obviously not breaking them, but he doesn't put them in your face. They're not necessarily key plot points. It's just they're tools that are used and they have a function and that's, that's about it. Heimdall's senses are a good example of of what I'm talking about. He can see and hear really well. So I had to figure out a way to have the Oten in particular do things that he cannot perceive. If it was something that he could perceive, then I had to have a reason for why he ignored it, or he didn't hear it, or he just kind of missed it in the... Volume of everything that he takes in every second of every waking moment. And finally, the last line of this chapter alludes to Odin's possible role or his origin as the leader of the Wild Hunt. The Wild Hunt consists of ghostly riders, an army of the dead who ride through the night and storms during Yuletide. I don't play up this connection at all in my books, except for this one particular line. But Odin, Woden, Wotan, and the underlying Germanic myths may predate what's been relayed to us about Odin via Norse myth. And just as a side note, nobody really knows how it is that Odin came to be recognized as chief of the Asir gods. Tyr and Thor may have been other contenders for that role at one point in time. And while there isn't a whole lot to be said about Tyr, uh, at least in relation to Odin and any type of competitive relationship, perhaps, there is a sense that Odin and Thor are often at odds with each other. And that's played up really well in, in a very cool uh, poem in the, in the Poetic Era. I forget the name of it. It's Harbad Slyod, I believe. And it is basically Thor is looking to cross a river and Odin has shapeshifted into the form of an old man, and they just basically hurl insults at each other the entire time, and it's fantastic. Well, folks, that's all I have for this recap episode. It ran a whole lot longer than I expected, and I hope you all found it interesting. If there's anything in particular you would like more detail on, let me know and I'll see what I can do. Reach out to me via the various social platforms that I'm on, or... Uh, really never on actually or just email me that's the best way to to go about it because i'm that old that email is still relevant like in the last recap when i started reading verses from the i'm going to continue doing that in these recap episodes but i'm going to do more lines from the poem because otherwise it'll take like 50 years before i get through the entire thing and nobody's got that uh, amount of time so these stanzas are this poem in general is pretty awesome It's basically a a, a riddle duel, a a verbal challenge that's batted back and forth between Odin and Vathrudnir. And one thing to know about this poem in general is that we know that Odin is going to speak with uh, the Jotun uh, Vathrudnir, but Vathrudnir welcomes this individual into his hall, and he doesn't know that it's Odin initially. And this type of uh, riddle game or... Mental challenge, the mental duel, is repeated in a lot of different stuff. It happens uh, between Bilbo and Gollum in um, The Hobbit when Bilbo finds the ring and kind of sneakily tells a riddle that Gollum can't answer. In this poem and in in these verses that I'm going to read today, Frigg is really worried about Odin going to speak with Vathrudnir. She doesn't want him to go because she knows that Vathrudnir is the mightiest of the giants— and as I had mentioned, I don't like using that particular translation of the word, but it's used here in the poem. But he, Vathrunir, is one of the most mightiest of the giants uh, of the Jotun, and that's Odin's about to do something that's pretty dangerous. Odin replies that he's learned as much as he can from everywhere that he's been and everyone he's talked to. Vathrunir is the next logical step in his journey, and he wants to go, he needs to go, and he, he will go. And this is an example of Odin being driven by this quest for wisdom and knowledge. And I I love the final verse that Frigg speaks, the blessing that she gives to her husband. It's clear, at least in this stanza, that she loves him very much. And in Kinsman Die, when Odin heads out on a dangerous mission, I have Frigg speak a variation of these verses to him. I'm using the Bellows translation for all of this stuff. It's available on sacred texts, and I'm using it because not only is it in the public domain, so anybody can use it, but it's where I started learning the myths, and I, I like the sound that they have. The older way of speaking lends it a gravity. I think that some of the modern voice uh, translations sacrifice for clarity and ease of reading, and that's not a bad thing at all. I've read and used both, uh, particularly when these verses here uh, get kind of confusing. And another neat part about this particular translation, and other translators do the same thing, is they provide uh, some footnotes and endnotes on what's what's going on in the, in the source text, like a line's been deleted, or uh, this word is unclear, or this refers to something else somewhere else. That was, for me, a really useful way to start on my, on my own personal Odinic quest for knowledge and for understanding of the myths, because I'd followed this link to this Footnote and to this source, and then keep going from 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 there. All right, here we go. Frigg spake, "Here, father, here at home would I keep, where the gods together dwell, amid all the giants, and equal in might to Vathrudnir, know I none." Odin spake, "Much have I fared, much have I found, much have I got from the gods, and fain would I know how Vathrudnir now lives in his lofty hall." Frigg spake. Safe mayest thou go, safe come again, and safe be the way thou wendest. Father of men, let thy mind be keen when speech with the giant thou seekest.